You're listening to sermons from St. Macarios the Great Orthodox Mission in Hyde Park. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to Jesus Christ. I want to begin this morning with a story uh, from the life of the 20th century uh, Roman Catholic journalist, writer, contemplative, social activist, and co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, and in my view, a saint, Dorothy Day. This story comes from a period of great turmoil in Day's life following her conversion to Christianity and her baptism in the Catholic Church, and it recounts, or it's recounted rather, in Jim Forrest's biography, All His Grace, which I've been reading this week. This event took place while Day was in her 20s. And at this time, she was a committed social activist, and she moved in intellectual Marxist circles in New York. And at that time, she was a very convinced and committed non-believer. In her view, being true to reality Uh, the reality of the world meant one could not believe in God. And she was joined by this belief by her friends and her co-workers, her whole community, in fact, and even her lover, who was named Forrester. Religion for day at this time was a form of alienation. To put it in the language of Marx, it was an opiate. Rather than alienation being hardened and sharpened into action. In Day's view, religion was simply meant to dull the senses and to pacify us, to help us accommodate ourselves to our state of alienation. So at the time of this story, Day and Forrester were living together and after a period of six years in which Day thought she was barren, she finally found herself pregnant. And this was a crucial turning point in her life. She was so overwhelmed with joy at the birth of her daughter that in an almost spontaneous prayer, she said, quote, for so much joy, I need to thank someone, end quote. And this moment was the seed of faith that would eventually blossom in Day's life. And soon after, she began receiving instruction in the faith and was eventually baptized and received in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, with all this great joy, there was also a great deal of pain in Day's life and a great deal of stress and tension, both personally and professionally. Forrester could not accept Day's newfound faith. For him, religion was on the side of property, it was on the side of the wealthy, of capitalism, of big business, and in his view of every reactionary impulse in the world, and he couldn't stomach it. And he couldn't understand Day's interest in Christ and the church, and the tension would ultimately lead to their separation. So while she's going, undergoing this great 
struggle in her personal life with her relationship. She's also facing other internal struggles, for she was not immune to Forrester's criticism. In fact, she felt herself in a place of tension. She was drawn to Christ, she was drawn to the church, and yet she did not find an easy home there because she was still deeply committed to the cause of workers, the unemployed, the poor, issues that we would today call social justice. And in her view, the church at that time was entirely absent from these concerns. In fact, it was rather the communists and the socialists who were working to help others. The Catholic Church, in her view, was absent. And this was all taking place in the midst of the Great Depression. And so here is what Day said in her own words about this time. She said, quote, more and more people were losing their jobs, more families were being evicted, the unemployed councils were being formed by the communist groups and the workers' alliances sprang into existence. It was a time for pressure groups for direct action. Radicalism was thriving among all except Catholics. I felt left out. There were Catholic membership in all these groups, of course, but no Catholic leadership. It was the year that Pope Pius XI had said the workers of the world are lost to the church. The bitter worm of despair was eating at the human heart. So that's all for background context. And this is where our story begins. It was November, November the 30th. The year was 1932, in the midst of the Great Depression. And a group of 600 unemployed men and women organized a hunger march. They were going to go from New York City to Washington, D.C., and this march was sponsored by the National Committee of Unemployed Councils in alliance with the Communist Party. And the march, and it wasn't really a march because they mostly drove uh, most of the way until they got there, but the march slowly made its way to Washington, mostly, as I said, in cars and vans, and Dorothy Day would follow along on public transit to report on these events. And perhaps it won't surprise you that the media coverage of this march was rather sensationalized. In the media narrative, this hunger march was evidence of a red revolution. The communists were coming to Washington and little attention was paid to the marchers' actual demands for jobs, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, relief for mothers and children, health care, housing, and other such supports for those who had lost all in the Great Depression. And at this time, as they're making their way, the government and the police did everything in their power to stop these peaceful marchers, including in one instance, firing tear gas canisters into a church in Wilmington, Delaware, where the marchers were sheltering. In Washington, D.C., barricades were erected. And in addition to the police, the National Guard was called in and the 6th Marine Reserve, along with 370 firefighters and volunteers from the American Legion 
and others who were all brought in to secure the capital. History doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. After about a week of this, finally on December the 8th, a court ruled in the marchers' favor and the barricades were reluctantly removed. The police were told to stand aside. And here is how Day describes the event in her autobiography. Quote, on a bright sunny day, the ragged horde triumphantly with banners flying, with lettered slogans mounted on sticks, paraded 3,000 strong through the tree-flanked streets of Washington. And I stood on the curb and watched them, joy and pride in the courage of the band of men and women mounting in my heart. Yet, as author Jim Forrest recounts in his biography of Day, she also felt a bitterness in her heart that day. She felt that because it was not the Christians. It was not the Christians who had organized this march, but rather the communists. And Day found herself in a bit of a dilemma. She had no friends among the Christians. And she was regarded as a traitor among the communists and the radicals. It seemed to her that her religious faith and her social conscience were almost incompatible for she could find no community where she could hold them together. She was feeling helpless, she was feeling hopeless, and she was feeling afraid. She wrote, how little, how puny my work has been since becoming Catholic, how self-centered, how ingrown, how lacking in a sense of community, end quote. The burning question for Day was would she ever be able to reconcile these two parts of her life? Would she be condemned forever to be an outsider to both her communities, the church and the radicals? What would she do with these feelings of fear and of helplessness and of hopelessness? I'm going to pause the story there for a moment because I hope you can see how this might be related to the gospel we heard this morning. For what we encounter in that gospel among the disciples and Peter is a very similar set of emotions, a very similar set of experiences. They're caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. They're frightened. And when Jesus walks out to them, they believe him a ghost. Yet Peter, with some courage, asks Jesus to call him out onto the water. And he goes, but looking to the wind and looking to the waves, he begins to sink. He's helpless, he's hopeless, and he was afraid. And what does Peter do in this situation? To whom does he turn 
Of course, he cries out for help to our Lord. He turns to Christ in prayer and says, Lord, save me. And Christ stretched out his hand to rescue Peter. Now, if we return to the story of day, how does she respond to her moment of crisis? She responded like Peter. As it happened, this final day of the march, December the 8th, is also in the Roman Catholic Church a feast of the Immaculate Conception. And so Dorothy Day went to the shrine in Washington, D.C. for an evening service, and there she recounted the events. She said, quote, There I offered up a special prayer, a prayer which came with tears and anguish that some way would be open for me to use what talents I possess for my fellow worker, for the poor. A prayer offered in anguish, a prayer offered in a time of hopelessness and helplessness and fear, a prayer that came straight from her heart that she would find some way to reconcile her faith and her social conscience. Now, God doesn't always answer prayers immediately or even always how we might expect. But in this instance of prayer for Dorothy Day, God answered almost immediately. For as the day wrapped up, she went back to her hotel and spent the night and then journeyed back to New York where she lived. And upon returning to her home from her reporting trip, Day found a stranger waiting for her. His name was Peter Morin. If you've not heard of Peter Morin, well, I'll tell you more about him shortly, but he had heard about Day from an editor at Commonweal magazine and also from some radicals who were organizing in Union Square who said that he and Day thought alike. And so she invited him to stay for dinner. Now, we have to abbreviate the story somewhat at this point, but Peter Morin, for those who don't know, was a significant figure in Day's life. Together, they would go on to found the Catholic Worker Movement. And this movement would publish a newspaper. They would form houses of hospitality across the country to provide food and shelter for those in need. They promoted, or they promoted also a return to the land through collective farming enterprises to provide food for those houses. And so Day went to the cathedral, she offered her prayer and she came home and there it was, there was the answer waiting on her doorstep. A way that she could reconcile her life. Now, I once heard the, the writer Jim Forrest say that the root of sin is fear. He was 
expanding on those words from Thomas Merton, who said that the root of war is fear. But Jim Forrest says, no, even deeper, the root of sin is fear. All these wrongs which we commit, these sins, whether small or big, when you dig down beneath the surface, you almost always find that emotion, fear. This is how the eminent Orthodox theologian and bishop John Zizulis put it. Quote, the essence of sin is the fear of the other, which is part of the rejection of God. So if fear is at the heart of sin, then the pressing spiritual question that we face is how do we confront our fear? How do we face our fears? How do we respond? What is our answer? We cannot offer an exhaustive approach to fear this morning. I want to draw out a little bit of what we've seen from the gospel and from day's life to try and provide the start of an answer. You see, the spiritual life is essential for combating fear. Without a strong spiritual life, we will struggle to find the inner strength that is necessary to stand up in the face of fear. Without a deep spiritual life, the voice of conscience and the courage to follow it will likely be suppressed. It is at the heart of the spiritual life that we find the courage to face a scary world. Because when we dare to delve into our contemplative lives, we find, in the words of Thomas Merton, an intimate union in the depths of our own heart of God's spirit and your own secret inmost self so that you are, in truth, one spirit. I think that is the essential point I want to draw out of this gospel this morning. In that moment of fear, Peter turned to the Lord in prayer. In her moment of fear, day turned to the Lord in prayer. God hears the prayer of helplessness. I want to close with one more story. This one is from the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's recounted in in King's book, Stride Towards Freedom. If you haven't read that, this is the book that deals with King's experience of the Montgomery boycotts uh, of the busing system in the late 1950s. King writes in this section of the book at a real low point in his life. When he was overcome by fear in the face of so much hatred and so much violence directed towards him 
and those 50,000 some people who are working for civil rights for African Americans in Montgomery, Alabama. And so this is King's description of one night when he came face to face with his fear. Quote, one night towards the end of January, I settled into bed late after a strenuous day. Coretta had already fallen asleep and just as I was about to doze off, the telephone rang. An angry voice said, listen, N-word. We've all taken, or we've taken all that we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. I hung up, but I couldn't sleep. It seemed that all my fears had come down on me at once. I had reached the saturation point. I got out of bed and I began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. When my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, but if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And at that point, King says, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. That moment, that deep spiritual life, was what strengthened King to go on with the bus boycotts to go on with the civil rights movement, to keep moving forward, to face those fears with the strength and the courage that only God can give. So God hears our prayers. He desires to comfort, to strengthen those who are afraid. He longs to reach out his hands to those who feel helpless or hopeless or overcome. It is in Christ we find our courage. It is in Christ that we find our strength. The world will continue to, bro to provoke fear. It will continue to cause worry. But we can face it if we face it with the triune God who is worshiped, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.